Today we read a hard passage as we continue in Isaiah 5. Doug did a great job explaining the metaphor last week of the vineyard, which God used to explain through Isaiah what Judah had become. In the passage we read today, there are six woes, which we may see as six ways the grapes have rotted off the vine. Now in viticulture, we can imagine the the grapes rot because of warm, muggy weather, because insects come to feast, because of weeds inhibiting circulation, because proper pruning hasn't occurred, a fungus has spread, the grapes aren't getting enough sun. So here, you might picture the Lord taking offensive fruit from the vine and saying what the cause is for this fruit that has spoiled, and then what will happen, he says, as a result of their rotted lives, because we're not talking about fruit. We're talking about people. And last week, Doug's vintner friend couldn't understand why the grapes would go bad in perfect conditions, and this week, we get an answer. But before we read, let's just think for a second about what woe means. Usually when we think of this word, we think of the expression, woe is me. Now, I don't know that anyone says that anymore, but all of us know that expression, don't we? We might think that the phrase originated with a certain Elizabethan literary genius we know as Shakespeare, but no. The phrase actually originated in the Bible with Job in Job 10. It was first translated into English by Wycliffe in 1382, And Job was expressing a lament when he said, in a more modern translation, if I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I'm full of shame and drowned in my affliction. Now, by using this phrase, woe to me, Job is expressing his heart's despair. And we might remember that Job had a grievous life, and he had no hope. He saw no hope when everything around him was sorrow. And he's telling his own possible part in what happened to him. Woe is anger. It's regret. It's sorrow. In contrast, Isaiah's audience are not aware of the reality of their plight. They're not sorry. So God is saying, woe is you. Sad are you. How terrible for you. Because you've sunk so far from where I created you to be. In the Bible, woe is a term of judgment, meaning that there's going to be a bad end for those who are called out, which is what we will read here. Now, this is a long passage. So that means I'm going to be talking a little bit less about it and allowing the word to speak more. So I encourage you to open your Bible to Isaiah 5. Of course, it's going to be up on the screen, but as I talk about it, you might want to look at it and read it and think about what it is that you think about it, not just about what I think about it. This is what you two. So Isaiah 5, 8 through 30. Let's listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church today as we read these words from so long ago. 
Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is room for no one, and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield a mere ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of strong drink, who linger in the evening to be inflamed by wine, whose feasts consist of lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine, but who do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their nobles are dying of hunger and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down, her throng and all who exult in her. People are bowed down, everyone is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are humbled. But the Lord of hosts is exalted by justice, and the holy God shows himself holy by righteousness. Then the lambs shall graze as in their pasture, Fatted calves and kids shall feed among the ruins. Woe to those who drag iniquity along with cords of falsehood, who drag sin along as with cart ropes, who say, let him make haste, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel hasten to fulfillment that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant at mixing drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and, and deprive the innocent of their rights. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will become rotten and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the instruction of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. Their mountains quaked and their corpses were like refuse in the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for a nation far away and whistle for a people at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly, speedily. None of them is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a loincloth is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and no one can rescue. They will roar over it on that day like the roaring of the sea, and if one look to the land, only darkness and distress, and the light grows dark with its clouds. Let us pray. Oh God, these are weighty words. Help us to hear them as you mean for us to, as your church, as your people, as those who are trying to trust you and know you, so that we may know you and love you more. Amen.
So we're going to talk about the six woes laid out here and then finish up with just a short overview of the consequence since we're going to be talking about that more in the coming weeks. So the first woe is found in verses 8 through 10, and it's a rot that comes from greed. The people have been given the land as a gift, but by the time of Isaiah, it was being hoarded by some. Now, the prophet Amos calls out the wealthy for being devious and using devious means to take land from others. And here Isaiah is talking about how homes and property are being accumulated by those who can do so. We might understand something about that living in this town. But there's a picture here of a person who has gotten so much that they have pushed others away so that they live in the middle of a field with no neighbors in sight. It's kind of like a competitive monopoly game. The more you have, the more you can get, the more you want. And the point here is how the mindset goes against everything that we know to be true, that everything belongs to God. God is angry here because they are using his wealth This isn't their wealth. This belongs to him. And they're using his wealth to harm others and to further an unhealthy dependence on what they have. This is bad for their soul. The consequence then, he says, is how soon these houses will be empty because God will cause the land to produce so little. So just think about that. Think about what greed does. Think about how greed is taking more than is necessary, and we might, how we might define necessary might be up for debate. We who live in really a lot of wealth compared to the rest of the world, but we want to be people who live with open hands to what God has given us. We want to be mindful of not taking what isn't ours. We don't want to live in a way that others are harmed because of what we want. See, greed is a silent killer to our souls because it's insidious. It can be hidden. Greed is a disordered love. And greed is often accompanied by good friends called manipulation and deception and exploitation and blatant discontent. And God wants to free us from the stronghold. And in order to free Judah from the stronghold, he has to take away what they have hoarded. The second woe is found in verses 11 and 12. This is about self-indulgence of those who are drinking and partying every day into the night. People who wake up thinking about what it is they can drink and what it is that they are going to do around um, that life. There are a few truths that Isaiah is implying here. One is how people are pursuing alcohol, and it has caused their lives to go up in flames. Another thought here is how the intoxication has brought people a deadened sense of reality, a deadened sense of the ability to know God or even care about God. Their pursuit of the high, their pursuit of escaping their reality has dimmed their need for God. As I was reading this, I was thinking about how growing up, I knew a lot of people that this description could be applied to. I spent an inordinate amount of time in bars, around alcoholics, and with people who simply just lived for the next party or the next drink. 
And it is a sad, hard existence that doesn't just affect them, but it affects everyone around them. And Isaiah is lamenting how much energy here is being given to excessive pleasure-seeking, that people can no longer see the beauty of the created world. They lack knowledge of God. The eternal world is wasted on them. In verses 13 and 17, uh, Yahweh matches the woes with what will result by saying that the multitude is now going to be parched. It's going to be parched with thirst because the party is over. The place of the dead, which thrives on lives being ruined and lost, is going to grow. No one wins when a society spirals down to places where humans lose their dignity because their choices have dragged them down. And Isaiah says the Lord of hosts is exalted by justice and shows his holiness with righteousness. See, all the woes that Isaiah is calling out here have a social component. And sometimes I hear people, Christians lamenting how we shouldn't adhere to social justice. But isn't every justice social? Are we as followers of Jesus, I want us to keep our eyes on the God who blatantly commands us, commands us in the Bible to lift up the poor and the brokenhearted and the lost and the least and the widow and the orphan, the lonely, the sick, and the suffering, the downtrodden, the addicted, the oppressed, the ill, the grieving, those who have been treated unfairly in all ways because of selfishness of others taking gain. God's justice is about doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So let's keep our eyes on the Lord and not just on labels that offend us. Let's do what the Lord expects us to do. Because we are not for social injustice. That's what Isaiah is saying. The third woe is found in verses 18 and 19. The people are holding on to what is false, which is binding them to wrongdoing. And in this place of cynicism, they are demanding that God would hurry up and prove that he is real. We think about the mocking thief next to Jesus, who dared Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, come down. Come down and save all of us from this cross. But Isaiah isn't talking to people who don't know God. He is talking to God's people. God's people who are demanding that God show a sign, who have delighted in rebelling against the Lord while pulling a wagon full of pain behind them. Woe, Isaiah says, woe to those who embrace the ugliness of life while goading God and expecting to be delivered. The fourth reason for rotted grapes is because they have perverted the truth. In verse 20, those who say good is evil and evil is good, for whom sin has become an accepted way of life. This is upside-down thinking and a redefining of God's truth. This is not new. It is old. We see it all over the place today. But notice now that the people have gone beyond account, making God account for um, his actions. Because now Judah is perpetuating the lie that there's no such thing as right or wrong. They've created their own moral code, what works for them in the moment or what works for a certain group of people. 
We use the term today gaslighting to indicate when someone is trying to give a different reality than what we know we experienced. But this verse reminds us that we have to be careful. We have to be careful of those who try to persuade us that there is no truth, that there is no moral compass, and that God doesn't care. God just doesn't care about certain things. As I was going through the various woes here, I kept thinking about the Garden of Eden and the first humans that we read about in Genesis. And I found a great quote from a commentary by Dr. Oswald. He's so spot on. Listen to what he says. He says, what are we to give up to God? Genesis 2 makes it perfectly clear. We are to surrender two things. Our right to decide what is right and wrong, and our right to supply our own needs for ourselves. Think about that. Think about the Garden of Eden. We are asked to give up our right to decide what is right or wrong for us, and our right to supply our own needs for ourselves. That's what we're seeing in God's words through Isaiah here. People wanted to satisfy themselves at all costs and then determine what was right or wrong based on what they wanted to believe was true. And what they believed was true was connected to their very own happiness. This is such a dangerous road. Because once we start thinking that there is no truth, except for what we make up, God has stopped, stopped being the center of our life. The fifth reason for rotted fruit here is about arrogance, and it's found in verse 21. Woe to those who are clever in their own eyes. It's not just that they lack wisdom, but it's that their pride and arrogance don't leave any room for God's counsel. There's no humility. So let's think about that for a second. When we say someone is full of themselves, that's a clear picture of someone who can't take in God's truth because they're bursting with their own ideas of what is right. This gives us another reason why grapes rot and gets back to Jesus saying that those who abide in him will bear good fruit. And Doug talked about that last week when we disconnect from the vine. We mistake freedom for autonomy. And we blame others when our lives don't work. And so when we find ourselves being puffed up with pride or judgment and anger about other people, that might be a clue for us to step back and just examine what's going on. In my school this semester, we're reading a book about adaptive leadership by an author named Ronald Heifetz. And he says that sometimes when we are in the middle of a dance with a bunch of other people, it's hard for us to get perspective. So we leave the dance floor and we go up to the balcony and we look down at our lives and we look down to get perspective and to see what it is really that's going on when somehow our steps aren't right. This is, he's talking about leadership, but I think it's a good perspective for all of us. That when we are full of ourselves, when we have that awareness, it's good for us to just stop to go up into the balcony with the Holy Spirit and just say, Lord, show me where my steps aren't right. Show me where I'm bumping into other people. Show me where I'm so full of myself I don't even see people. It might be something for all of us to do, to seek a different view and allow God to show us what is true. 
The last reason for rotted fruit is found in verses 22 and 23, where people are called sarcastically heroes and courageous. For, again, he brings up drinking and their mixology skills. The point is really how they focus on shallow pleasure while disregarding true needs going on. This points to those who have influence and who are using their influence to take bribes so the guilty will go free and the innocent are deprived of real justice. Now verses 24 through 30 begins to tell what is in store for people. They've despised and rejected God. His hand is stretched out against them. In Isaiah, God's hand stretched out against them is um, actually not a sign of judgment. It's actually a sign of God's patience. God's remarkable patience. His hand is out. He is not happy. But that same hand will one day in the future welcome them home and hold them close. But for today, these verses spell out how Judah's enemies, Assyria and Babylon, are going to come. They're going to come swiftly and speedily. They are awake. They are ready. Assyria is taking land like nobody's business, and they are on their way. Their weapons are poised. They're like a roaring lion seeking who they would devour. They're going to leave the people in desolation. This is a picture of the exile before it occurs. And while Isaiah ends with a grim picture, in verse 30, there is light behind the clouds. Isaiah says it's getting dark, but we can still see the light. So we hold on to that light in Isaiah. So let's end with a quote from the prolific writer and preacher Charles Spurgeon, who said, God's woes are better than the devil's welcome. We should memorize that. God's woes are better than the devil's welcome. Think about that. The judgment of God, the truth of God, the conviction of God is better than anything that evil offers us. In his sermon on this passage, dated 1884, Spurgeon preached how the Bible is a book of blessings, and God always means for us to know good. And woes are given so that a person has the opportunity to turn from evil to the dangers that are found there. And it may be, he says, that finding the dreadful shrill of God's truth in your ear rather than the sweet sound of God's love will startle you enough to seek and to find your Savior. So that through eternity, he says, no woe can find you. You guys, that was in his first paragraph. I'm going to put that, I'm going to put this sermon on um, the website this week. You need to read it. That's just in his first few sentences. But he ends this paragraph by saying this. May the good spirit of all grace put power into the warnings God gives so that you, the church, might profit from it. Amen. This is Lent, and we need to be grieving the woes that come as a result of us living for ourselves more than others, for others living for themselves more than God. Sometimes we live in such a way that our lives don't honor God, and we don't necessarily see it. So where does the rotted fruit in our lives come from? Let us seek the Lord in quiet for the truth he would speak to us.
Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.